So we are continuing in the book of Mark this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 14. We'll be finishing it up this morning if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, It is page 903 in the Bible in front of you. Um, But the next two weeks, we're going to take them together, and we're going to call it Jesus on Trial, because it's basically the two weeks um, of Jesus' two trials. And so we're going to take one this week and one next week. But imagine... Just with me for a moment. If Jesus was actually on trial, you see him up there um, sitting in the witness stand, and you're the one asking the questions. What questions would you ask Jesus, not that he's going to lie to you, but knowing that he's under oath and he has to give you the answer? He has to answer your questions, right? Would you ask him, hey, why did this event happen in my life? Or maybe, where were you? I needed you, or my friend needed you, or my spouse needed you, or my family needed you, and where where were you? Or why are we having a pandemic, right? Why are we all doing this? What's happening? Or maybe on a positive note, right? Why did you save me, right? I wasn't deserving. I didn't need it, but you chose to save me. Or why didn't you save someone else? Right? I think these are all questions that we might want to ask Jesus when he was on trial in front of us. And so this week, um, we're basically going to talk about who is Jesus, and then next week we're going to talk about what we do with Jesus when we look at these two trials together. And so this morning, we're kind of talking about who he is um, and what implications that has in our lives. So let's read together um, Mark chapter 14. We're going to do verses 53 through the end of the chapter. Um, And so let's read these together. So it says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. Now, I'm going to pause here, just because we're going to go back to Jesus in a second. But this this is Mark's last sandwich. We've been talking about Mark doing sandwiches all the way through. And so here he introduces Jesus and Peter at the beginning and tells you what they're both doing. And then he's going to come back to Peter at the end. And so that's the, what we see this morning. And so then in 55, he says, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by human hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. And again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. And while Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And then he went out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. 
And when the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Um, Galileans kind of having an accent. That's something maybe we can understand as Texans, right? And then he started to curse and to swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And so that's what we see this morning. We have actually this contrast between Jesus and Peter, Jesus who comes through his trial faithfully, and Peter not so much And so we're going to begin actually with the trial with the religious leaders. And so we saw that in 55 to 59. And so they're putting Jesus on trial, trying to condemn him and put him to death. This is actually something we've seen in the book of Mark since chapter 3 is when they decided, hey, we got to get rid of this guy. We need to do something about it. And so we're finally getting to the point where he is in custody and he is on trial. And we might think, right, this trial is rigged against Jesus Um, They definitely know the outcome that they want to happen, Um, but as you read it, they're at least trying to make it look fair, right? Because when the witnesses come and they testify, when the witnesses don't agree, they don't count them as uh, legal witnesses, and so there's like, they, they don't agree, so we can't actually use this to condemn him. So I'm giving the religious leaders a little bit of credit. They're at least looking for good witnesses in this moment. Um, And so they do that, and in the trial, as they question Jesus and try to condemn him, we discover in these answers and questions who Jesus really is. And so we're just going to look at those um, four things that we see about who Jesus is and what the implications are of those in our life of his identity. And so first we see that Jesus is the suffering servant. We see this in 60 and 61 Right when the high, After they've kind of tried to find all the witnesses, they couldn't find any. They don't know what to do. And then the high priest begins to question Jesus, right? Are you going to answer us? And then they ask him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And this is actually what Mark has been trying to show us the whole time for the entire book, that Jesus tells the disciples what will happen to him, that he will suffer, that he will be killed, that he will die, that he will rise again. The connection to this suffering servant is from Isaiah chapter 53. And if you read Isaiah 53 and kind of the end of Mark together or the end of any of the Gospels, it's, it's incredible how they fit together, um, even to the way that Jesus would answer questions when on trial. This is Isaiah 53, 7. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. And so the fact that Jesus was silent for most of the questioning is pointed to in Isaiah chapter 53. And so the trouble the Jews are having with understanding that Jesus is the Messiah is that there is no way they imagined that somebody who has been arrested, who all of his followers have abandoned him, who is on trial, who has no defense, Um, In that situation, he looks, what they would say is, right, he's weak. He can't overcome any of these other things. Everybody's left him behind. And so they can't imagine in their minds the Messiah, the one who has come to redeem and rescue, that they imagine actually with this military might that overthrows their oppressors and conquers their enemies and restores Israel. They just can't imagine that someone who has been arrested and abandoned is actually the Messiah. And so that's the struggle that they have. 
right? because they imagine someone strong. And so the reason that they're having trouble is it's making a mockery of God and his promises for anybody who would claim to be the Messiah. And I don't think that's actually that different than how we sometimes think of Jesus. Right? Have you ever thought Jesus was weak because he didn't act in your situation? Right? You're praying, you're seeking him, you're asking him for help, and he doesn't respond. He doesn't seem to solve your problem. So you wonder, maybe he isn't actually powerful enough to actually do something. If he can, right? if he is powerful, then why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he do something? <clears throat> And I think that's actually one of our biggest questions of God, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, right? Why, if God is loving and if he is good, why does he sometimes seem, from our perspective, uh, weak and disinterested, right? He's not acting in my life. He doesn't seem like he knows what I'm going through, because if he knew how much I was hurting or struggling, then he would definitely fix this. And part of it is, just like the religious leaders, we think strength and love means action and rescue and defeating your enemies. But sometimes it's a loving thing to do nothing, even though it looks like weakness. Right? If you think of parents with their kids, there are points in your life as a parent where you have to let your kids fail. Right? You have to let them do that so they can learn and grow and know hey, I can't jump off of this piece of furniture to this other one because it's too far, right? So they fall and get hurt, or they do other things, or maybe it's a school-related thing. But as a loving parent, sometimes you let your kids fail. And so from the outside, it may look like, well, that parent doesn't care about their kid because they just let them crash and burn, right? But you do that out of love and compassion and care so they can grow and move forward, and I think that's, in, when we're thinking about this concept, that's where we need to remember that Jesus is the suffering servant. He suffered just like we suffer. He was a servant of God's will, just like we are servants of God's will. Right? We talked about, in the past couple of weeks, he asked God for a different way, just like we do sometimes. But in the end, he was a faithful servant. He was obedient even in suffering and death. And there's some implications, I think, of Jesus being our suffering servant. One is, because he is the suffering servant, our suffering is lessened. We suffer less because of Jesus' suffering. One of those things is just kind of God's grace to us. It's called common grace. Um, Common grace is the idea that the world isn't actually as bad as it should be. Right? The fact that we can come here and gather and have a building and our building hasn't burned down and you can drive in traffic and people like stop at red lights and stop signs and don't just crash into each other and go first and steal stuff from the grocery store and steal all this. Like, all of those things we would say as Christians are because of common grace um, because God has given some grace to everyone so that things aren't as much of a disaster as they could be. So our suffering is less because of that. Um, also, He helps us to overcome the temptation and pain of sin. As you become a believer in Christ, and you follow him, and you give your life over to him, it actually lessens your 
giving in to temptation and sin. So the, the, the pain and suffering that is sometimes caused by our own temptations, by our own selfishness, by our own sins, is lessened as we follow Christ because he sanctifies us and he changes us and he saves us from some of the pain that we may have experienced if we weren't following him. So he rescues us. He reduces some of that because we are in Christ. It also reminds us that our suffering is temporary. It's not permanent, right? So if you have complaints, um, maybe some kids in my house have been complaining about our summer plans, that we don't have a big vacation planned this year, right? That's a kind of suffering. Or maybe you have a health issue, or you have a bad boss, or you have a mean teacher, or you're experiencing pain, or you've been grounded for something that you've done. All of those things are temporary. They don't last forever. Eventually, they will pass. And for us, even if it lasts our whole lives, it's still temporary. Right? This life is just a preparation for the next one. We can have a different perspective as believers because we know this isn't all that there is. Right? When your life is going to go on and you're going to be in heaven with God for eternity, it gives you a different perspective for how you experience and deal with things in this life. Right? So even if it lasts for your whole life, something better is coming. It also helps us to know that our suffering is purposeful, right? Suffering or hard times are not just random events that happen. It isn't just the universe out to get us or payback for something that we have done. Just as Jesus' suffering was purposeful for our salvation, our suffering can do the same. It can push us to rely on God. It can help us to grow in our faith and trust him in areas we didn't trust in him before. God is doing something through our suffering. Now, we may not always understand or discover what it means, but it's not random, meaningless events in our lives. There is purpose behind them. So we see that Jesus is our suffering servant, and it helps us in those areas. Next, we see that Jesus is the Son of God. We see this in verse 62. He says, I am, in answer to the question about being the Messiah. By the way, that's the first time in the book of Mark, we're in chapter 14, that anybody straight up asked him if he was the Messiah, right? You would think all along the way when he's kind of hinting at it and trying to get people to see that, that somebody along the way would say, hey, let's just ask him if he's the Messiah. But it isn't until chapter 14 when he's on trial that somebody actually directly asks him if he's the Messiah, right? And his answer is, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, whenever I hear the phrase, I am, um, I hear echoes of the Old Testament and echoes of Exodus. When Moses goes and sees the burning bush and uh, God is trying to convince Moses to go back and to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so when in this conversation, Moses just kind of keeps asking question after question, like, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm the right guy. I don't really know how to talk. And then he gets to this one of, who will I tell them has sent me? Right? When I go back to the Israelites from the desert and I go and say, right, this person sent me to free you guys, who do I say sent me? And, G and the response is, I am who I am. Right? I am is the word that God uses to describe himself, meaning I have always been, I am now, and I always will be. He's eternally existent. So I think some of what Jesus is doing in this answer when he says, I am, even though we would say, yeah, that's what, yes, I am the Messiah. But I think there's a, a connection there 
to Exodus and God throughout the history of the Old Testament, that he is there. He has always existed. He will exist. He will go forward. And so nothing came before him. Nothing is more powerful than him. Nothing is after or will outlast him. And then he talks about being seated at the right hand of power. Um, this word for power is, is a stand-in for God. I don't think it's hard for us to, to see that. But this is another reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, that says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what he's saying is, Jesus will sit at the right hand of the Father. After his work is finished through the cross and he is seated, he will ascend and rule with power from God's right hand, a position of honor. And then he talks about coming on the clouds. He's going to return to finish the job. This is a connection to the book of Daniel, um, chapter 7. So he's going to claiming to be the judge of those who are now judging him. And so we see Jesus as the Son of God and the power that comes with it. So what are the implications that Jesus is the Son of God, that he will rule, that he has power? Well, one is that he is ruling he is currently ruling now. He has sovereign control over the universe and the events in our lives. We just talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, really in the depth. So if you want to go back and listen to that, um, you can do that. So I'm not going to do a lot there. But we can also live and grow and follow and thrive and endure because Jesus is ruling. Life has purpose and meaning because Jesus is watching directing and waiting for the go sign, right, to come back and to return. That his loyal subjects, those who follow him, will be rewarded. And those who rebel against him will receive justice. It will happen in the end. But not just that he is ruling, but also he is returning, Right? One day he will come again and he will set everything right. We can have hope no matter how things are going because Christ is returning. When things are hard, we can hope that Christ will come and restore them. He will make them right. We can have confidence in Christ because he has been true to his word. We see that all throughout scripture and he will be true to his word to return. And so we can have confidence that he will be true to his word again and return for us. And we can endure because he is faithful as the Son of God. He gives us the promise of salvation, the promise of eternal life, the promise of sanctification, and one day actually the promise of glorification where we'll be without sin in his presence. So we can endure those moments. Next, we see that Jesus is the condemned one. We see this in verses 63 through 65. Right? When the high priest hears his answer, why do we need witnesses? We've heard the blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, these other ones are important. It's great that God is, Jesus is the Son of God. It's great that he's the suffering servant. But being the condemned one is actually the game changer for us, right? Jesus being condemned is the first step towards opening the door for our salvation, right? That's where things change. And they thought when he answered that he was blaspheming, right? He's claiming to be something or do something that only God can do. 
but it's only blasphemy if it isn't true, right? But Jesus was telling the truth. But in spite of all they had seen from Jesus all along the way, they still couldn't believe that he was the Messiah. I think that's a question for us, whether you're here and you're listening and you're not yet a believer or you are, right? In spite of all that you've seen from Jesus, do you really believe that he is the Messiah? He is the one that can rescue you. He is the one that can save you. He is the one that can change everything and live like you know that. Right, and they say he is deserving death, right, that he was um, deserving of that. So he was this innocent man, but condemned. And I'm going to jump over to 1 Peter chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. But I think this concept of Jesus being innocent, but condemned for us and taking punishment for our sins is really clear in these verses. So in 1 Peter 2 verse 21, it says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Right? In this verse in 1 Peter, it makes it very clear that Jesus was innocent. Right? The only person to ever live without sin. He never lied, no deceit, followed God's command, followed God's will better than anybody else ever could. And so he is innocent. So in this trial, he is condemned. There's no doubt for his innocence. But what does that mean for us? This is where Peter goes next in verse 23. He says, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his, in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So it's not just an innocent man being condemned and dying. Right? He died for a purpose. Right? Your sins were with him when he died on the cross. Right? By his wounds, you were healed from your brokenness, from your sin, from your pain, from your suffering. From all of those things, you were healed in him. Right? His innocence counts for you. That's why this is the game changer. He was condemned even though he was innocent. We're condemned because we're guilty. Right? But he took our place so that we could be innocent, so that we could have righteousness. Right? So that we could be counted uh, clean and righteous and upstanding in God's sight. And so that's what we're here for. That's what it's all about, right? That we have been changed by Christ. And yes, we talk about this a, a lot around here, right? But these, I, I want us to be really clear. These are not just facts that we need to know. Yes, I understand Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus rose again. I can have um, innocence and righteousness through Christ. If you just know those facts and you recite them, that's good. Um, but there's a level that you have to go past that, right? You have to believe that those happen, that those are effective for you. You have to trust in Jesus to be the stand-in for you. So you trust in him, right? That he is the sacrifice in your place, that I was guilty, but he stood in my place. I believe that he is actually my representative, 
And so think of all your sins, the, the lies, the, the gossip, the judgment, the complacency, the lust, the anger, the turning away. Those are all the things he took from you. He took those on himself and he gave you back righteousness. Right? That's a pretty good trade. Right? We should take that like a hundred out of a hundred. Right? We should take that trade. He covered each and every one of those sins. And so not only can we trust in him, but we can trust on him that his sacrifice was sufficient for God's wrath towards us as sinners, that it was turned away, that he absorbed it for us so that we can have life. It was turned away. We have to believe that he did that for us. Again, Isaiah 53 talks about this. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. Right? He bore those things for us so that we could have life, so that we could be with him for eternity. And so as the condemned one, yes, he gives us salvation, but he also understands what you're going through. If you've ever been treated unfairly, he understands. If you've ever been accused of something you didn't do, he understands. If you've ever been overlooked or judged, he understands. And more than just understanding, he knows how to overcome it, right? He went through worse than we will ever deal with in our entire lives, and he overcame, and he conquered, and he can help us overcome because he has been through it, and he has overcome. He has the ability to help. He can help us overcome our sin because he has overcome sin. He can help us overcome temptation because he has overcome temptation, Right? Hebrews talks about this, that he was like us in every way. He was tempted, yet without sin. Right? So he understands your temptations. He understands your struggles. He understands what you're going through, and he can help you overcome that. And he can even help you overcome death. Right? For having eternal life and being with God for all eternity. And So last we see Jesus as the patient Redeemer. And this is what we see in the story of Peter, right? Of, of three times kind of being told, hey, we know you're with Jesus. No, I don't even understand what you're talking about, right? I don't even remember. We know you were with him. No, I think that was somebody else. No, it wasn't me. See, Jesus is the patient redeemer even in that, right? Because what happens before this? Jesus warns Peter, hey, this is coming. You're going to deny me three times, and then a rooster is going to crow, right? He told him exactly what's going to happen. He warns Peter. This is what's coming. Peter's like, no, that's not, I'm never going to do that. But then we get here, and Peter denies Jesus three times in a row. One, two, three. And then the rooster crows, and he realized, oh, I did it. I did just what Jesus said I was going to do. And so he breaks down and he cries and he's weeping. And the, what, what Mark is trying to get us to see here is that Peter, kind of all the way through, has been the spokesperson for the disciples. Right? He's the first one to talk. He's the one that gets a little bit more responsibility than other people. And so what he's saying is, if Peter can fall, so can anybody else. 
If this can happen to Peter, it can happen to you. If this can happen to Peter, it can happen to me. Right? That's what he wants us to see. That we have been warned that we will be tempted, that we will fall away, that we will fall short, that we will try to do things on our own and not rely on Christ. We have denied Jesus, just like Peter. We have turned away. We have fallen short. We have given in to temptation. We have done all of those things. But here's the, the, the beauty of Jesus as the patient redeemer. And it's, it's not in our text today. It's actually not in the book of Mark. Um, it's in one of the other gospels. But Peter is actually restored at the end of this. And he's restored three times by Jesus. And so even though Peter was warned and Peter denies and Peter falls away, and in the moment of need, he turns away from Jesus and denies him, Jesus restores him and restores him to leadership, restores him to following him, restores him to trusting in him, of loving him and being restored. And Jesus does the same thing for us. Even though we've denied and we've turned away and we've fallen short, he restores us. He redeems us. He makes us new. He makes us whole. He picks us back up and he dusts us off and he says, let's go try again. No matter how many times we mess up, no matter how many mistakes we make, he restores us. Not in anger, not in frustration, but in patience. Because when Peter is restored, Jesus actually never says anything about him denying him. He doesn't say, well, you did all this stuff and you denied me three times, so now I've got to take care of it. And put... No, he doesn't do it. He doesn't even bring it up. He just says, Peter, will you love me? Will you serve me? Will you take care of my people? And he restores him. And Jesus does the same thing for us. As we confess and repent and turn to him, he forgives us. And it's over. It's gone. So we can be restored just like Peter. No matter how many times we mess up, no matter what you've done in your past, you can turn to Jesus and he will redeem you. He will forgive you. And so understanding who Jesus is makes all the difference in our lives. Right? And I hope today we, we can see, it's not just understanding the facts about Jesus, but actually the implications for what each of those things does in our lives. Understanding that Jesus was the suffering servant helps us to endure suffering, to have a better perspective on what's happening to us and what God is doing in our lives or why he's maybe not doing anything from our perspective. Understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is powerful, that he is ruling, that he will return, changes the way that we live and the way that we see the world. That Jesus is the condemned one, helps us to see that we are saved, we are redeemed, he was condemned on our behalf so that we could be declared righteous. And he is the patient redeemer that follows us, that walks with us, that loves us, that restores us again and again and again and again. And we can trust in him. So as we think about who is Jesus, or maybe even what question would I ask Jesus, hopefully understanding these things about who he is helps us to maybe understand what he is doing in our lives so that we can follow him. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you did send our son for you, for us. We know that we didn't deserve it. We, we deny and we fall away and we fall short, just like Peter. 
We sometimes have harsh questions for you or doubt you, just like the religious leaders. But even in the midst of all of that, you still sent Jesus to be here for us, to die for us, to stand in our place so that we could be righteous. And so God, help us to trust in you. Help us to understand who you are, but not just the facts about who you are, but let those things, those truths affect how we live, affect how we see the world, how we live in our families and in our church and in the people around us, at our jobs and at school. God, that what you have done for us changes everything. That you, were, you have suffered, you were condemned, you have restored, you have redeemed, and all of those things make a difference in our lives. God, so help us to rely on you and trust in you and know that you are there for us even sometimes when it feels like you're not paying attention. We know that you are there. So help us to seek you, to love you, and to trust in you above all things. In your name I pray, amen.